0: Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions, of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Keep that in mind. Underline it, make a little mark there. At verse seven, in appearance the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair were like women's hair. Their teeth like lions' teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now, if you remember when we were here last week, we kind of began looking into this passage. We're going to go into it in a lot more detail. And I already explained to you that this is actually an army of demons, if you will, that are released from the pit, the bottomless pit, the abyss, and they're allowed to go on the earth and to sting mankind, and they they harm them in the point that they make them they torture them for five months, and the people want to die because of the torture, but they're not able to. And we, we dealt also, when I was here last week, we dealt with the fact that the leader, this, this angel that fell from heaven, was given the key to the abyss. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, he's the Apollyon. In the Hebrew, it means destruction. In the Greek, it means destroyer. It may be Satan himself. It may just be a mighty angel. We don't know. But all when, what we did point out last week, though, was he didn't have the keys to the, the abyss, did he? They had to be given to him. And he was allowed to unlock the demons. And we already saw that this place, the abyss, is a place of torment and torture. And it's a prison for demons. And that's why we saw in Jesus' day when he walked on the earth and that man had the legion of demons within him. Remember how the, the demons said, are you going to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? They didn't want to go. They knew it was not a good place to be. These, these are things that come out of the abyss. And it is, they're demons, folks. Again, years ago when I was young and was beginning to study prophecy and I had been taught to try to figure out the symbolism in everything because everything's symbolic. I used to try to figure out the, the sting is in their tails. Well, maybe that's an Apache helicopter and, you know, and what does this mean? And you, you, ever, you ever done that kind of stuff? But the more I came to realize if it was symbolic, the Bible would have told us it was symbolic and what it symbolized. Therefore, this is just a, a description of demons. And we shouldn't be surprised that they don't look like anything we've ever seen before. Hopefully you haven't seen a lot of demons. Yes, ma'am. They're coming as locusts. Yeah, but they're, they're take as you're going to see, and we're going to go to Joel chapter 2 in just a second, they're allowed to come onto the earth and just to attack humans. Now, real quickly, though, before we get to our Joel passage, there have been a few people that have been paying real close attention who caught something here, and it made them to question. If you remember when we were studying last... Uh, we had one of the trumpets blown, and a third of the trees were burnt, and what? All of the green grass. Yet we get here to the fifth trumpet, and they're told, don't harm the green grass. And many people have said, wait a minute, how can there be green grass? It's already been all burnt up. Let me ask you a question. Those of you that have seen any of this kind of stuff, you ever heard of a controlled burn? What's the purpose of a controlled burn? It keeps fire from spreading and it also allows it to come back stronger. Grass grows back, folks. The fact that all the green grass was burnt doesn't mean that there's never to be never to have any more green grass from that point on to the end of the tribulation. All it was just simply showing us was that that in this judgment of God, this trumpet, when happened, something happened on the earth that a third of all the trees were destroyed. And all the grass was burned up in the process, but grass can burn back. But also, we're also, I mean, grow back, not burn back. Uh, We also see here that these demons were told not, they're not going out to destroy the earth. They're going out to attack human beings at this time. Now, go with me to Joel chapter 2, because I want you to see that actually there's been a prophecy many, many thousands of years ago in the book of Joel about this one day that is still coming. Joel chapter 2, we're going to read the whole chapter. Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 1, "'Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations.'" Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is what? It's like the appearance of horses, just like we read in Revelation chapter 9, verse 7. And like war horses, they run, as with the rumbling of chariots, almost word for word, what we read in Revelation. They leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path, and they burst through the weapons, and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls they climb up into the houses they enter through the windows like a thief the earthquakes before them the heavens tremble the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining the lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great he who executes his word is powerful for the day of the lord is great and very awesome who can endure it now I want to pull out for you in this passage a couple of things from here in Joel that will be helpful for you first off Some of you are saying, wait a minute, Jim. It says here in Joel that the earth is affected by these people. That's true. But you got to keep in mind this prophecy in Joel chapter two that we're reading about is not just talking about what's going to happen in chapter nine of Revelation verses one through twelve. But it's also talking about this army that I'm going to have you look at tonight in chapter nine of Revelation verses 13 to the end of the chapter. You see, this these demons, as you're going to see, are going to first go out, and they're not to do any devastation on the earth. They're just to attack human beings and to torture them for five months. As we get a little further in our study tonight, you're going to see that this same army of demons is going to be allowed to kill one-third of mankind. And I believe that's when they are allowed to affect the earth And things that we read here in Joel chapter 2 begin to happen. So keep in mind, Joel chapter 2 is not just talking about what we read about here in the 5th trumpet. But I'm going to show you, I believe it's also referring to what we're going to read about in the 6th trumpet as well. But this is the day of the Lord. But did anybody else catch, look at verse um, 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. If these are demons, how is the Lord head of this army? He's head of everything. Who's who's opening these seals? Jesus is. you got to keep in mind, uh, 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 there was a wonderful sermon preached years ago by by a man that that a lot of you may have heard him on the radio. And I knew him when I lived in Chicago. Uh, His name is Erwin Lutzer, pastor at Moody Church. And he preaches a sermon called, The Lord's Satan. And he shows how Satan is a tool of God. And God uses Satan for his purposes. He's the Lord's Satan. Now, Satan does what he does by his own volition, but God controls what he can and cannot do. He's actually a tool in the hand of God. And so God is the one that is bringing this judgment. Oh, he's allowing the demons to do what they do well, and you're going to see that when we get to the sixth trumpet. But God is the one who's bringing this judgment. Remember last time we were together? He's right and just in doing so. And so don't be shocked by the fact that the Bible describes this army as the Lord's army. God can use demons for his purposes as well. Now, what I also want to bring out to you is to go a little bit deeper into something that I dealt with last week that I want to kind of show you scripturally where I'm coming from. The scripture says back in Revelation chapter 9 that they or were, these demons were allowed to torture people, everyone who didn't have the seal of God on their foreheads. And the great debate among Christian Bible teachers, especially prophecies teachers, is are these demons allowed to affect, uh, torture everyone, both believer and unbeliever? Or are they only allowed to torture the unbelievers? And our first reaction is to say, well, those who have the seal of God on their foreheads are the believers, therefore, they only are allowed to affect the unbelievers. But I showed you last week, or told you last week, that I lean toward the fact that I think scripturally that these demons are allowed to torture believers during this time as well. Now, listen closely. You don't have to agree with me on what I'm about to show you. This isn't a make or break issue. But I have been trying to let you know that my desire is not to come and teach you what Jim thinks and what Jim likes. My, my desire is to teach you what the word of God says. My flesh doesn't like the idea of the fact that these demons might be allowed to torture believers during this time period. But as I look at the scriptures, I've come to lean. I have not come to a full conclusion. I come to lean toward the fact that I believe the Bible shows us that even believers will be tortured by these demons during this time period. And I want to show you why. All right. So what do we know from Revelation chapter 9 about who they're allowed to torture? Go back to Revelation chapter 9. It says in verse three, from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Who do we know for a fact from scripture right now has the seal of God on their foreheads during this tribulation period? The 144,000. Very good. Go back to Revelation chapter seven. Man, you just made the teacher and me just giggle when the fact that you guys had the answer. I means something stuck. I like it. That's awesome. Look at Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So here we know for a fact from this scripture that the 144,000 are sealed by God. And we know that the sealing involves a protection. They're able to go out into the world and to proclaim the gospel. And many, many people come to faith because of their ministry. We have just automatically assumed that because of their ministry, the people that come to faith during the tribulation period automatically are sealed too. But I kind of want to show you scripturally, I'm not sure the Bible teaches that the believers during the tribulation experience the same gift that we have as the indwelling Holy Spirit. I think the Bible actually leans more toward the fact that during this last seven-year period that was prophesied by Daniel, left for the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem, I believe they're going to go back to an Old Testament type of a way. And in the Old Testament, when a believer came to faith in Christ, actually it was in God because of Jesus' death, it was in Christ. They just didn't know him by name at the time. When a believer became a believer and became an Old Testament saint, did the Spirit of God come to indwell them? No. You remember how the Spirit of God came upon Saul and he started prophesying. Everybody said, is he one of the prophets? But when he disobeyed, God removed his spirit from Saul, didn't he? And Saul became a very miserable person during that time. And that's why David in Psalm 51, when he commits his sin with Bathsheba, says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Is that anything we in the New Testament time period of the church age have to be afraid of, him removing his spirit? No, no, we don't have to worry about that at all because in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. For those of us who are in the church, we're in, as you've already heard me, hopefully heard me teach on, we're in a time period in which promises that God is going to fulfill for Israel down the road have been given to us Gentiles just by God's grace. Why? The Bible said back in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 21 that they were going to go after, the nation of Israel was going to go after gods that weren't gods to make him jealous. He says, I'm going to take a people you don't consider a people and I'm going to make you jealous through them. Romans chapter 11, Paul said the same thing, that he's saving us Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And so he's promised to the Jews down the road, one day I'm going to give you these wonderful gifts. Well, let me show you what the promise is. Go to Ephesians chapter 36. Sorry, not Ephesians, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel chapter 36, look at verses 22 and following. Therefore... I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols." I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you hear what God promised the nation of Israel? One day, he says, for the sake of my glorious name, I'm going to fulfill my promises to you. And I'm going to gather you from all the nations, bring you back into your land. And I'm going to erase all your sin. And I'm going to put my spirit within you. By the way, when is that going to be fulfilled, according to the scriptures? You're right, at the end of the tribulation. The Jews are being regathered, as Ezekiel 37 talks about, in the the Valley of Dry Bones and coming back to life, but they don't have the breath of God in them yet. are Are the Jews worshipers of God now? Has he erased all their sin? Has he put his spirit within them? No, they're still about to go through a really rough time. They're going to sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist. And for a half, three and a half years, they're going to think everything's all right. And then he's going to reveal himself to be who he really is. And he's going to go after them. Two-thirds of them are going to be killed. One is going to make it out into the desert. And while they're out there, God's going to protect them, as you've already seen. And he's going to spare them. And that's where he's going to reveal himself to them when he comes back. And they're going to look on him whom they pierced, as Zechariah 12 says. And that's when he's going to fulfill this promise and he's going to erase their sin. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 11 that all Israel will be saved. The Israel that has made it through the tribulation, those that are left, all of those Jews will be saved as God erases their sin and he puts his spirit within them at that time. Did you catch that? At that time. So if God is not putting his spirit within them until at that time, we should assume that even the Jews that come to faith during the tribulation period won't receive His Spirit indwelling them. That is something the church has been given as a gift. Actually, if you do a further study, I don't have time to go into it in too much detail, but some of us have wrestled with this over the years. In, Revelation, sorry, in John chapter 20, as Jesus is risen from the dead, He appears in the upper room to His disciples on the night that he, on the day that He rose from the dead. He appears to them, and He breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Right. Yet it's not until Acts chapter two that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them. Because people have said, well, that's when the spirit came to No, because Jesus said, wait until wait in Jerusalem until you receive the gift that the father's promised you, which is what the promised Holy Spirit coming to live within them. So why does Jesus breathe on them then that night in the upper room and say receive the Holy Spirit when Jesus knows they won't receive the indwelling Holy Spirit until Acts chapter 2, 50 days later at Pentecost? Any idea? It's partially opening their eyes. I'm sorry? It's close. That's even closer. John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do. Folks, they couldn't even wait in Jerusalem without his empowering. So what does Jesus do? He puts his spirit upon them to empower them to even be able to do what they needed to do until the day that he came to live within them. Interestingly enough, if that's the indwelling of the spirit, when Jesus breathes on them, as some people teach, poor Thomas missed it. He wasn't in the upper room when that happened, was he? I oh, know the indwelling, the gift that the father promised happens 50 days later at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit began or came in, dwelled them and the church began. We're in this time period of the church age where God has done an amazing thing. He has erased our sin. He's put his spirit within us. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 and uh, for, in Colossians chapter 1 that he was given this ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles to reveal this mystery, which hadn't been revealed in previous generations to the previous prophets and all that. But God was revealing it through his apostles and prophets now in the New Testament that the, not the Jews, sorry, Gentiles being saved isn't a mystery. God had been saying that all along. I could show you tons of scripture in the Old Testament that said the Gentiles would be saved. But the fact that they would be co heirs with Israel. And the fact that they would receive his indwelling spirit was a mystery not to be revealed until the time of the church age. So as I look at all this, I get the impression from Scripture that the tribulation saints. Remember, the church has been removed before the tribulation period. The tribulation saints are going to be empowered, if you will, by God as he comes upon them because of their faith. But they won't be indwelt and sealed the way you and I are. And I also want to show you from Scripture, Old Testament, church age, and in just a little bit, tribulation time period. Does the Bible teach that if you're a believer, you're spared being attacked by Satan? Not at all, does it? Think about Job. God controlled how much and whatever, but Job was attacked by Satan, was he not? He wasn't spared because he was a believer. We also see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that Paul prayed three times for this thorn in his flesh. Listen to how he described it. A messenger from Satan to torment me. He prayed three times that this whatever it was from Satan, this thorn in his flesh from Satan, this sting, if you will, from Satan, be removed. And what did God say? No, my grace is sufficient. I'm going to teach you how to rely on me and I'm not taking it away. So scripturally, there is evidence of the fact that there's a chance that God would allow the demons to torture the believers at that time. We know the 144,000 are sealed and have the mark of God on their foreheads. I don't see yet that the tribulation saints get that sealing. I hope I'm wrong for their sake. But if the scripture shows us, though, that the Jews won't receive his indwelling spirit until the end of the tribulation. That means they don't have it during the tribulation. And is he going to just give it to the Gentiles and not the Jew? No. In the church age, the indwelling spirit is given to the Gentile and the Jew. He's made the two one. And so, folks, I lean toward the fact. Lean. I haven't come down one way or the other yet. But I lean toward the fact that I think that when the scripture says they're not allowed to harm anyone except those They're allowed to harm everyone except those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. It might be just 144,000 that are spared this. And let me give you one more picture. Go back to Revelation chapter 7. This would make a lot more sense as we get a little further along. So let me just kind of give you a little commercial for what's going to come later on in our Revelation study. There's going to be a bowl poured out on the sun... And it's going to be allowed to scorch everyone on the earth, the Bible says. When God pours out his wrath on mankind at the end of the tribulation and we have the seven bowls, one of the bowls is poured out on the sun and it's allowed to just scorch everyone on the earth. Listen to Revelation chapter seven, starting in verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come I said to him, "'Sir, you know.' And he said to me, "'These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat.'" For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you see it? It doesn't appear that the believers who came out of the tribulation were spared all of these judgments to come on the earth. Again, I hope I'm wrong. But I want you to understand that as I teach you this stuff, I want to be faithful as I can be to the whole of Scripture to build a doctrine and build a teaching. I don't know the answer as to whether or not unbelievers will be the only ones tortured and believers will be spared, or whether or not only the 144,000 are the ones spared. I lean toward the fact that it's only the 144,000. Now let me ask you a question. I'm going to get you ready to talk because I'm about to give you a quiz. A lot of quizzes actually. Why would, if, if I'm right, and I hope I'm not, if I'm right. Why would God allow the demons to torture the believers during that time period just as much as the unbelievers? The Test of faith? Very good. Keep going. Show his glory as he does for everything. Okay, show his glory in what way? They're going through it and how they persevere through it. So you're talking through their response. Doesn't the Bible talk in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3? Y'all can quote it, can't you? I'll get you started. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who are shielded by God's power through faith. In this we greatly rejoice, though for a while we may have suffered trials. These trials of greater worth than gold, which perishes though we are refined by fire, have come Why? To prove our faith genuine. God even allows us to go through tribulations on this earth, does he not? Doesn't the Bible say the rain falls on the just and the unjust? How come we keep falling into... Lord, I've served you! Lord, I even went to Sunday school. I can name a lot of people that don't even go to Sunday school. How come my kid gets sick? How come my wife died of cancer? Lord, we all have fallen into that, haven't we? We think that if we walk with God, we'll be spared this. Is there anywhere in there that it would be consequences because they didn't choose him before? I don't think that the Bible teaches that God will punish them for that. The only people he punishes are those who are the unbelievers and who have rejected ultimately. Because if we think that God's going to make punish us, We really don't believe Jesus paid the full price for sin. So, if you're a believer, he won't punish you. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're a believer, you're covered by the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid the full price for your sin. Don't ever fall into thinking that God will punish you because that means Jesus didn't pay the full price for your sin. But I I get pruned. Oh. And the discipline in Hebrews 12, it says all discipline is not pleasant at the time, but it's not punishment. It's not punishment. Okay. It's a chastening for sure. So folks, what I want you to understand is, is the Bible talks about, well, let me just tell you a quick story. There's, there's a family I know back over at First Baptist in the Atlantic, and I've known them for years. And uh, um, when I was youth pastor, shoo, almost 30 years ago, uh, one of their children was in the youth group. And this was an interesting time because it wasn't just prior to that, just a few months prior to that, one of this family had a large, large number of kids. One of their children committed suicide. He was heading back off to university at Christmas time after Christmas break, and instead of heading back to university, he went off somewhere to a park and took his life because of depression. It's a very strong Christian family, very involved in the church. They love the Lord. They walk with the Lord. And this happened. I've known this family for years, and then I became pastor of that church, and this family is still there. I remember one day going to a cemetery to do a funeral and riding with the father of this family. And I said to him, "How? it's been a lot of years, how do you deal with going to cemeteries and not think of your son? And he made a very interesting statement to me that day as we were driving. He said, Jim, if you had asked me back then if I believed in the health and wealth gospel... You know, the the preachers that say that if you follow the Lord, you'll be wealthy and you'll never be sick. He said, if you had asked me back then, did I believe in the health and wealth gospel, I would have said, no, I think it's heresy. But he said, but when my son took his life, I came to realize I kind of did. Because our first reaction was, God, we raised him the way you said. We did it right. He came to know you as a child. Lord, we did everything we were supposed to do, this isn't supposed to happen. Folks, I hope you do understand. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And God, for his purposes, sometimes will allow things to happen to believers just as much, if not even more. To prove our faith genuine. My grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Faith not trust, tested is not trusted. Exactly. As Job said, even though he slay me yet will I trust him. So, let's go back to chapter nine of Revelation and let's look at the second half of this. What I think the rest of Joel is talking about because we're gonna come back to Joel in just a little bit. Revelation chapter nine, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. And the sixth angel blew his trumpet And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Before I go any further, let me just say a couple things to you so you don't miss what we want you to see here in this section. If they are angels that are bound at the river Euphrates... Are they good angels or bad angels? bad angels? They're bad angels. They've been kept in chains, if you will, for a long time. But they're going to be released at this moment to go and do what? According to Revelation nine, okay. to kill a third of mankind. Go ahead. Are these the same angels that were having uh, sexual? I would lean toward not because those the Bible says are in a different place. These are bound at the river Euphrates. Were there angels in Genesis 6 that left their position, cohabited with women, and God put them in chains? Yes, but it says in Jude that they're put in a different place until the time of judgment. These angels are bound in the same way, but in a different place. But they're going to be released to kill a third of mankind. And they have been waiting, and still are, for that day and that month. Folks, do you think they're going to do a good job? Uh, I think they will. They were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. For those of you that aren't good at math like me, that's 200 million. Let me keep reading. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They were breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons of idols, sorry, and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, if any of you have been doing any study in prophecy over the years, you've heard Bible teachers talk about this army of 200 million, and they've said that it was who? China. Well, let me tell you something, and I'll show you how you can know this. Um, it's not China. That's the danger of reading the Bible and then quickly trying to find something in the world that we see right now that would fit it. And they did all the math, and they said, well, the only nation that would have that kind of an army is China, and they're real close to having an army of 200 million. This is China. We've got a problem. Has anybody ever kind of done the math to try to figure out how many square feet it would take to just hold an army of 200 million? Actually, if you bought that book that I told you to get that Tony Kessinger wrote, he's done the math. And he's actually laid it all out, calculating the square footage of Israel and how much land there actually is. An army of 200 million would not even fit in Israel. It's bigger than that. Especially when you start to calculate they're going to need their tanks and their supplies and all this kind of stuff an army of 200 million wouldn't fit. Oh what is this army of 200 million? You've already read about them back in Joel chapter 2. These are those demons that have come out of the abyss. For a time they're not allowed to harm anybody, or sorry the earth, but they're allowed to torment man for five months. And then when the sixth trumpet is blown these four angels who have been bound at the river Euphrates, and that's kind of important, because I'm going to come back to that in a second, which have been bound at the river Euphrates, are released to kill a third of mankind. And I believe as we put it all together, we see that there's four angels who have been released, but they're not the only ones doing the work, because the scripture says the army that does this is 200 million strong. These are the demons that we read about in Joel chapter 2 that go out over the whole earth. And before them, it's like the Garden of Eden, and behind them, it's just devastation. Can you even fathom, and I'll get right to you, can you even fathom what it would be like to have a third of mankind die? What would you do with the bodies? What would you do with the smell? What would you do with the, uh, folks, we can't even fathom it. And don't even forget the fact that we've already had mankind becoming dead, if you will, during the tribulation period. This is a third of what's left. Yes, sir. This would suggest that God made over 600 million. Yes, it would suggest that God made over 600 million angels. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if the number of angels match the number of stars. Because actually, if you look at the scripture, you'll see the word star and angel interchangeable a lot. And we see a star fall from heaven and we know that it's referring to an angel. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if the number of stars is matched up with the number of angels. Yep. Now, someone, do you have a question? Go ahead. Go for it. Yeah. Like, all we know is that they're allowed to kill a third of mankind. We don't know who's, who the third is. Believers may be killed during that time as well. well is, that why, is that why they go up and they're standing in front of the... That's a possibility. Okay. I was just going to say, it says they're serving the throne. Yep. So they have to have died at some point during this to be able to be there to serve the throne. You got it. Don't assume that all believers are just going to make it to the end. But what We've already seen that when the Antichrist steps into power, the false prophet makes this idol and everybody's supposed to worship it. And if you don't take the mark, you'll be killed. We've already seen in Revelation chapter 13, and we saw it back in Daniel chapter 7, that the Antichrist was allowed to make war against the saints and to overcome them. There's a strong chance that these demons kill believers as well. They'll go straight to be with the Lord. Now, someone asked me last night. Now, Jim, when you talk about the square footage of Israel or the square mileage of Israel, is that what it is now or what the Bible says their property is really supposed to be? I don't know if many of you even know this, but what Israel has right now that the world's all fussing about saying they have too much is not even close to what the Bible has prophesied that the nation of Israel was given by God. And if you do that whole study, it will blow your mind. Because I'm going to say it and there are going to be people that are from Syria and Jordan and Lebanon that won't be happy. But actually, if you do a study, you'll find that it incorporates all of Lebanon, all of Jordan and most of Syria. Uh, Not all of it, but a lot of it. A lot of it. Now, listen, where are these angels bound? By By the river Euphrates. As I just kind of prayed over that, I thought. Hang on for a second. That's the northernmost border of what God promised Israel. Go with me to Genesis chapter 15. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Genesis chapter 15. Look at verses 18 through 21. I had this wave of, man, I got so much more to do, and I think we're out of time. I looked at the clock and realized we had 20 minutes left, and I think, yes, thank you, Lord. We might get it in. Genesis 15, look at verses 18 through 21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Do you see it? The land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, the Amorites, Canaanites, Gergesites, and Jebusites, and Mosquitobites. All right. <laughs> the northern border, the southern border is the Nile. The northern border is the river Euphrates. The western border is the Mediterranean Sea. The eastern border actually crosses over the Jordan because, remember, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were given tri- uh, land east of the Jordan River. Now, by the way, let me just say something real quick for those of you that deal with people who think that um, God's not going to give Israel the land in the future. They love to quote from Joshua chapter 21, verse 43, I think it is. And let me double check me. Go real quick there. Go, Go to Joshua chapter 21. 21-41. 21-41. I was close. No, nope, I was right. 43. Don't question myself. All right. Joshua 21, verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. Now, there are those who think that God is not going to future give Israel their land, who love to quote from this passage right here and say, God already gave to him all the land. There is no future fulfillment Let me bring out two or three things to help you understand that this cannot be what they're trying to make it say that at that time they got all the land. First of all, what did God promise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He said, I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land. Did they ever receive it while they lived on the earth? No. Actually, in Hebrews chapter 11, twice, it says, these died never having received what was promised And it's talking about the fact that when Jesus comes back and he comes and sets his kingdom up on this earth, what did Jesus promise his disciples? You will sit with me at the feast at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. When they come with him and he sets up his kingdom on the earth and the full promised land ultimately will be given to them. That's when they're going to have the promise fulfilled of being in the land and all that kind of stuff as well. And if you do a study... At this point of what was given, it doesn't match up with the full boundaries that God had already laid out, which was their land. And go with me to Judges chapter 1. Just turn over a couple of pages to Judges chapter 1. What do what your headings say right there above head, chapter 1 of Judges? The continuing what? Conquest of Canaan. And if you keep reading, God continues to give them more land. Well, why is God giving them more land? It even says, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites? And so on. So at that time, before Joshua died, had they received all of the land that God had promised them? So that all couldn't mean with that passage. But they love to quote that one verse. I want to just fill you with the fact of, remember, I've been trying to teach you, build your doctrine not on a verse, but on the whole of Scripture. When you look at the whole of Scripture, you realize God promised a whole lot more. and They hadn't gotten it yet. On top of that, he still has them go get more land after that time. Can't be what it meant. Can't be what it meant. Now, go with me to Joel chapter 3. And we'll go back to Joel 2 as well. But go with me to Joel chapter 3. Because I think the fact that the angels are bound at the river Euphrates is tied to something that's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. I don't know about you, but has Joel moved since we were there earlier? Mine did. There it is. All right. Joel chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. By the way, when's that going to happen? At the end of the tribulation period, the beginning of the millennial kingdom. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, who? Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Did you catch this? I don't think it's any accident that these angels that are going to send to kill a third of mankind happen to be born bound at the northernmost boundary of what God had promised Israel. And the Bible says that at the end of the tribulation period, when Jesus comes back, the humans that are left, he's going to gather them all. And he's going to judge them according to how they treated Israel. Now some of you hopefully are starting to catch on to something that we've been taught for years that didn't really apply to us. You see, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus tells the story of the sheep and the goats, right? And if you remember, many of us have brought, wrote, been raised in churches where we were taught that that's when God judges us, whether or not we gave someone water or we visit them in prison and come on into the kingdom. We've, we've preached that to the church, not meant for the church. Remember, Jesus' teaching was to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. His teaching, even about the end times, was teaching about what was gonna happen to Israel in the last days. And if you remember Matthew 25, verse 31, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with Him, he'll gather all the nations and he'll judge them according to how they treated these brothers of mine, you remember? When you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it unto me. Who are the brothers? It's Israel. That's how he's gonna determine who lives in the millennial kingdom, who comes into the kingdom. The ones who treated Israel right during that time period where Israel was under attack, will be allowed to populate the millennial kingdom, the ones who weren't of the goats, and they go to hell. By the way, you want further evidence that it's not for us? Do you get to go to heaven because you gave someone water? No. Do you get to go to heaven because you visited somebody in prison? Do you go to heaven because you gave someone clothes? No. It's by, it's by faith. This is who gets to populate the millennial kingdom. When you let the scripture speak, you'll realize most of the stuff taught to the church didn't apply to us. Jesus was talking to the Jews in the last days getting them ready for what was going to come. Now, go back to Joel chapter 2. Verse 18. This is after we've already read about this, uh, sorry, verse 12. We've already read about this army of demons that comes across Israel and just does this damage. We already have seen in Revelation that it's going to be twofold, stinging them where they're wanting to die but they can't and then killing a third of mankind. Verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. "...with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love." And boy, haven't I realized that over the years in my walk with Him. Thank you, Lord, for that. "...and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly." Gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest and the minister of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach by word among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and he had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending to you grain, wine and oil and you will be satisfied and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Has this happened yet? No. No, it's a future fulfillment. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the true tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Do you see it? That's a future fulfillment that's going to happen after this judgment of the locusts the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, the, the, my great army, which I sent among you. My great army, we see it again. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Yes, sir. Will that be You got it. That's going to be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation in the millennial kingdom. Very good. Now, as we close tonight, in the last 10 minutes that we got here, let me ask you a question. What was the reaction to these two trumpets? What was the reaction to the fifth trumpet when the demons were allowed to torture but not kill, and then the demons were allowed to kill a third of mankind? from Back in Revelation 9, what was the reaction of mankind? They didn't repent. Now, i got to be honest with you, our, our reaction is, how in the world? How in the world could they not, with all this stuff going on, I mean, meteorites flaming with fire coming down into the water and turning it into blood and all this different stuff happening, how could they not repent? And I'm going to talk to you tonight in the time we have left about the danger of a hard heart. Now, listen to me closely, because I'm going to go into, unfortunately, I have to do it fast But I have to go into a teaching on the hard heart that you need to understand. And I'm going to be first talking about unbelievers. And as we close tonight, I'm going to flip it and talk about believers. Because the judgment of God for unbelievers who have a hard heart is different than the judgment of God for believers who have a hard heart. But believers are just as guilty of a hard heart as unbelievers are. And so as I talk to you tonight about the danger of a hard heart, I want you to understand what the scripture says so you can be ready and be sensitive so you won't end up there. Because a hard heart is a place you don't want to end up. Go with me to John chapter 12 and I'll show you what I mean. John chapter 12 verses 37 through 40. And John chapter 12 starting in verse 37. Jesus, the scripture says, though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He, meaning God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Did you see that? They would not believe. They had a choice. They would not. You say, well, I don't think they had a choice. No, they did. Jesus himself stood over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 23 and said, oh, if you had only let me, I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you weren't willing. Folks, did Jesus lie? No, he wanted to. They would not believe. Listen, then God flipped a switch and he hardened their heart so they could not believe. The Bible teaches that there comes a point where God stops drawing and judgment comes. Let me ask you a quick question. Does the Bible tell us about Noah closing the ark? Noah didn't close it. God shut the door. Not only was he keeping Noah and his family in, he was shutting the door and everybody on the outside. Go with me to to uh, um, Exodus chapter 7. I want to do this fast. I promised you a quiz, and I don't want to let you down, and have you? some of you are probably hoping I forgot. But I'm going to give you a quiz in Exodus chapter 7 and following, and I'm going to have to do it fast. So I need some of you um, teacher's pets to speak up faster than everybody else so that we can move through this. (laughs) Exodus chapter 7. I want to show you what I just talked to you about in the story of Pharaoh. But I want you to see it from the scriptures that God said at the beginning, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But that doesn't mean that God hardened it right away. I'm going to show you from scripture that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then at a certain point, God flipped a switch and God hardened his heart the rest of the way. So I'm going to show you in Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I'll lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and I bring the people of Israel out from among them. Now some of people would say, look, Jim, look what it says. God said he'd harden his heart. Pharaoh didn't have a choice. Ah, that's the danger of building your doctrine from one passage of Scripture. Let the whole of Scripture be how you build your doctrine because I'm going to show you now that Scripture shows that Pharaoh hardened his own heart until a certain point, and then God did harden it as he said he would. I put a little note in my Bible where right? when God says I will harden heart, Pharaoh's heart, I wrote, in time. In time, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Look at verse 13, and here's the quiz. You tell me after I read this, is Pharaoh hardening his own heart, or is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? So the question, answer is either going to be Pharaoh or God. Verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh. Pharaoh, good for you. 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Pharaoh, go to verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh. Verse 23, Pharaoh turned and went to his house, and he did not even take this to heart. Pharaoh, look at verse 15 of chapter 8. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh, look at verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh again, go over to chapter 8, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Now, by the way, some of you might have been saying, wait a minute, Jim, it just said Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't let him go. That could still mean God. No, not according to this verse here we just read. Verse 32 again of chapter eight. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So that means all those other times Pharaoh was hardening his heart. Do you see it? Can't be any more clear. Look at verse, chapter 9, verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Pharaoh. Now be careful. Don't, don't get lazy on me. Verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. God hardened Pharaoh's heart this time. But don't assume that the, flip has been, or the switch has been flipped. Don't assume it. Look at verse 34. Of chapter 9. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Did you catch it? God hardened Pharaoh's heart prior to this, just prior to it, but God gave him one last chance. Because you're going to see from now on, it's all God. I just gave you the answer to the quiz. Look at verse 35. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, chapter 10, verse 1. For I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Did you see it? Go to chapter 10, verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Look at verse 27 of chapter 10. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Look at chapter 11, verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not let the people go out of his land. Is that because he sinned the last time? In the food? There, we, we have to be careful about trying to explain God. That's a danger we preachers have, don't we, James? Because want, everybody wants us to explain it. You can't figure him out. But there's some things we can learn from the Scripture about who he is. My speculation is, that God hardened his heart just for a little bit so he could feel what it felt like. It didn't do anything to him. God let him make his last choice. From that point on, God shut the door. They would not believe, therefore, they could not believe. I don't know if these people that won't repent in Revelation chapter 9 have gotten to that point of hardening of heart. But I can tell you this much, there is such a thing, and you don't want to be there. Folks, it's not our job to determine whether or not God shut the door on anybody. We know this about God. He'll give someone a chance to be saved right until the day of their death, right? Thief on the cross, even. So we know the heart of God. He doesn't, We're not willing anyone to, be, to perish, but all to come to salvation. We should never put ourselves in the position of, oh, I think that person's hardened their heart. I think God shut the No, don't you even think for a second you're going to be God and make that call. That is the call of God and only Him. We should be preaching the gospel to everyone, offering it to the last second, because who knows, because God is a God of mercy. We've already seen that he hardened his heart and then flipped it again and let Pharaoh have another choice. God may do that as well. He's a great God. So keep preaching the gospel to everyone. But understand, Christians, there's such a thing as a hard heart for believers as well. Will you lose your salvation if you harden your heart? No, you're guaranteed eternity. The Bible's so clear on that. But the Bible does teach that for persistent sin in a believer's life, they'll take you home early habitual sin, continual disobedience to the Lord, there comes a point where the Lord says, you know, you're doing more damage than good down here on the earth. I'm just going to have to take you home early. And the Bible talks about a loss of reward. First Corinthians chapter three says, we have to be careful how we build on this foundation of Jesus Christ and faith in him. Each one be careful how they build, whether it's with wood, hay or stubble, gold, silver, precious stones, and it'll, every work will be tested. If his work burns up, he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the fire. First Corinthians chapter 11 talks about those who are taking the Lord's Supper and not considering their brothers. And because of this, some are weak and some are sick and some have died. Ananias and I'll get right to you, John. In Ananias, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, I believe without question, we're believers. I mean, they, it wasn't easy to be a part of the church at that day. And not only that, Peter, when they lied about how much money they were actually giving to the church, pretending it was the whole amount. Listen to what Jesus, Peter said to them. He said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Did you catch that? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Assuming the Holy Spirit was within them. Folks, I just want to challenge you. And I'll close with this, and I'll let you ask your question, then I'll close with something. Go ahead. My, my question is, isn't there a danger for us believers, especially family, to share about them? That it I wouldn't call it a danger. Um, I think sometimes we can uh, get in the way of what God's trying to do sometimes by us trying to get people saved in our own effort instead of the Spirit of God. And I caution people to not do that. But... God's doing his work and drawing people. I I, I don't want to start saying, hey, this is where you cross a line. We have to be real careful how we have to, we start telling people how to share their faith. We have to be careful not to do that. As I close tonight, and, and I know what time it is, and we had a little late start, so I think we're gonna be all right. As God has been teaching me as a parent about grace versus legalism, it changed how I parented. See, it used to be when my kids were younger, I was more focused on whether or not they obeyed the rules. And if they broke the rules, which, by the way, we all do, I was going to bring the punishment. Man, our kids knew dad's spankings hurt. But as God began to do this work in my life, about, I'd say, 14, 13 years ago, it started to change how I was as a parent. And what became more important to me as a parent now wasn't whether my kids obeyed. Whether or not they understood how to recognize the leadership of the Spirit and walk in obedience to the Spirit within them. See, because there's going to come a day, and it's, it's coming now, when our kids aren't in our house. And we can't be there to watch what they watch and to control what they do or all these things. And our responsibility was to teach them how to be sensitive to the Spirit and not tune Him out. One day, years ago, when our son AJ, who's now 17, was younger, Becky and I sent him to bed. And said, look, we need you to go get ready for bed, do your bathroom routine, and then come say goodnight. We realized about an hour later we hadn't seen him come out and kiss us goodnight. So I go check on what's going on, and we have horrible kids. And my son was just sitting on his bed reading a book. The old me would have jumped on the fact that we gave an instruction, he broke the instruction, and now it appears the punishment. But that's not what our role is anymore. Now we know who God is. And so I sat down next to him and I said, AJ, let me ask you a question. Did you hear us tell you? He said, yeah. I said, what happened? He said, I saw the book and I got reading and I got distracted. I said, "Okay." I said, let me ask you another question. While you were sitting here reading the book, did a thought ever come through your mind? I need to go get ready for bed because mom and dad said so. And he said, yes. I said, what did you do with that thought? He said, I pushed it away. I said, that's what I want to talk to you about. I'm not here to talk to you about whether you obeyed us or not. I want to talk to you about not getting good at that. Because we all have to learn to recognize when the Spirit of God says, don't do this. This isn't best for you. Avoid that. And folks, if you know people that fall into what we call grievous sins, they didn't start off that way, did they? No. They got good at tuning out the spirit when he was trying to lovingly guide them. And God in his love for us sometimes will say, if you won't listen, I'm going to just let you run that way. You don't lose your salvation. You just deal with the consequences of some of your choices. And so I say to you tonight as we close, let's not sit here and close our study with, man, those people wouldn't repent. Mm-hmm. We've got to be careful that we keep a heart of repentance as well. Anybody here doesn't sin anymore? (laughs) Me neither. Me neither. Listen. But when the Spirit of God lovingly says, let me clean this, don't tune him out. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.